0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Las Vegas-based writer Laura McBride is out with a new novel, Round Midnight, spans six decades. When Las Vegas grew from a dusty gambling town into the melting pot metropolis it is today, it's the story of four women, one who falls in love, one who gets lucky, one whose heart is broken, and one who has always wondered, whose lives change at the midnight room. Lar McBride, author previously of *We Are Called to Rise*, is a graduate of Yale. She teaches at the College of Southern Nevada, lives in Las Vegas with her uh, family, and uh, joins Access Utah um, on the road. She's uh, on her book tour, and we appreciate her taking time to be with us. Welcome to the program, Lark McBride.
1: Oh, Tom, thank you so much.
0: And I believe in this in this case, uh, we can you know pull the curtain back. Uh, joining us from your rental car, uh, pulled over by the side of the <laughs> road. There.
1: I am, joining from the
0: rental car. Uh, so we appreciate uh, that. And heading towards Salt Lake, the event in Salt Lake is tonight, 7 p.m. at the King's English Bookshop in uh, Salt Lake uh, Salt Lake City. So we talked to you uh, previously about We Are Called to Rise, a wonderful book, uh, set in Las Vegas, around midnight, also set in Las Vegas.
1: It is. Um, so like, I, I, they're very different books. Um, I, I think you would recognize my style, and but... The, we Are Called to Rise is a first-person book, and it takes place over a short period of time. And Round Midnight is in the third person, and it takes place over 60 years. But I chose Las Vegas because I think it's a really interesting city, and I think it's a really American city in in many ways. And, I, I mean, I live there, but I could write about a lot of places. Las Vegas is um, great fodder for a novelist, in my opinion.
0: I wonder if you could tell the story of how this uh, this began. It's uh, in some publicity materials. I'll just read this uh, shortly. Uh, quoting you, I was writing a novel about Ingracia, one of the characters who does appear in the book, but halfway through I went to this tired little nightclub in a casino that was about to close and saw a terrific show. I wonder if you'd take uh, the story up from there. It's uh,
1: fascinating how this began. Uh, yeah. Well, when the marketing for the novel comes out, um, Touchstone and I say things like four women— their lives are knit together over 60 years, and we kind of emphasize the differences in those four women. And that's all true. Those are true statements about the book, but they aren't really how I conceived it. Um, I'm not conceptual in that way, actually, when I write. So um, we had, you know, we we're in Las Vegas, and an out-of-town guest came to visit and wanted to see this show. And it was in the Riviera Casino shortly before it was to be imploded. The Riviera had been scheduled to be imploded for months, if not more than a year, and I don't think it had been cleaned once in all that time. Um, And the nightclub was kind of dirty and smelly and smoky, and it just had that feel of a place that was about to disappear. Um, And I absolutely wasn't that keen to be there. So we went into this little room, and it was a doo-wop show. It was the lead singer from the Coasters, a guy named Early Clover and a couple of singers from the Platters. And that's a little bit before my time. I'm not young, but they were a lot older than me. They were stars before I was born. And so here we are in this dirty, smoky, kind of awful little nightclub, and they started to sing. And they could sing. They could dance. They were absolute professionals. They owned that room. There's a sort of magic that happens in any kind of live entertainment, um, especially if you're with – real professionals who know how to sort of bring an audience along. And I was so surprised by it. I wasn't expecting such a wonderful show. And I had the thought, I wonder who has been in this little room over the last 50 years since it was about to disappear. And almost immediately, the first character that a reader would meet in Round Midnight, a woman named June Stein, who comes to Las Vegas in the 1950s for a quickie divorce, ends up staying and founding a casino empire. Almost immediately, she popped into my mind. And once I had June Stein and I had Las Vegas in the 1950s and the early 1960s, I just started to roll forward. So I was in the middle of a different novel. It had become very sad, so sad that I didn't want to live in its world. And I just abandoned it to follow June Stein um, should I should I keep telling you about it, or do you yeah. want to take a little pause? Uh, no, let no, start let's, adding in the other
0: characters. Get, yeah, add in the other characters. It's uh, the four characters. Very interesting, and it so that's. But let me pause just there. Um, that's interesting. You, the previous, I guess, novel, the, the story you were inhabiting, just got too sad for you to want to inhabit it anymore.
1: Yeah, it did, and you know, I like to think of myself as someone who's a little bit fun and. You know, you wouldn't mind inviting me to your house, and I might tell a funny story. But as a novelist, I can—I try to hone in on things that matter and on stories that get to the heart of what it feels like to me to be a human being and to live. And that often takes me into a sad place. Um, but not so much in *Round Midnight*. In that novel I was working on, it was—it was—it was getting pretty sad. So anyway, I ended up with June Stein, and I ended up with Vegas in the 50s, and I was kind of imagining that it would be a story about her life alone. And then I thought, I wonder, you know, if I'm going to bring June Stein forward in time, I wonder if uh, she would run into Honorata. And Honorata is a character I had been imagining for, I don't know, 20 or 25 years. And she's a, the character I've imagined her to be is a Filipino male order bride who comes to Las Vegas for a weekend and ends up winning a jackpot. And I saw a little picture in the local Las Vegas newspaper two decades ago, and I know nothing about the woman in that picture, but I've been spinning a story about her because it was such an unusual and interesting photo of a little Asian woman dressed in a mink coat that went well below her feet and all these diamonds around her neck and a big check she had just won all this money from this from a jackpot at the Caesars Palace. And I don't know anything about her or what she won or what happened to her but but I've been imagining that she's Honorata for years. So so then I had June Stein and I had Honorata and then I thought, well, there's a character in that novel I was writing, uh, a maid who works in a Las Vegas casino, her name is Angracia, and I really liked her and I thought I could bring Angracia into And for a long time, I thought of it as a book about three women, June, starting in the 1950s, Honorata, who comes to Las Vegas in the late 80s, and Engracia, who lives in Las Vegas now. Um, And then the fourth character is an African-American woman named Coral, and she just worked herself into the novel. I say she, she came into the novel because I set June Stein in motion, and when you put June Stein in motion, things happen.
0: <laughs> uh, so, and it's not giving away too much to say that the lives of these four women will intersect.
1: They will. They finally intersect at the end of the novel, and they lead very different lives. And I think a reader could get caught up in each story, and and maybe even find it a bit of a mystery as to how they're coming together. And I think what I would say to that reader is, it will feel like a mystery to you, but I always knew. And I always knew the mostly ordinary ways that their lives would come together. Um, I I play on that notion that if you live in the same place, for for readers who have been living in Salt Lake City or the area for a long time, sooner or later you keep bumping into everyone or your child knows someone or you you work with someone or, you know, in Las Vegas we say six degrees of separation, not so much, you know, if we've lived here 20 years, maybe one degree of separation from everyone else. And I kind of play with that idea that people who are apparently living very different lives in very different ways, if they stay in the same place, um, might end up touching, touching each other in unexpected and unusual ways. And just one more thing. The reader will see their lives touch before the characters become aware of it. I think that's a fun part of reading the novel, too. You, right. You'll know, hey, these people are going to come together, and you'll think, oh, it's right here, oh, it's right here, oh, it's right here. Um, but it's not until later.
0: That's uh, part, of the, the, part of the joy, of course. Um, you are interested, I think, generally, in how people intersect, how we come together, not only locally, but I guess globally?
1: I am. I, I say that's because I live in a really... Um, in a place where people have come from all over the world. What makes Las Vegas an interesting place for me is the way it was. It's a boom town. It grew very, very fast. And it grew from almost nothing, or at least a a very small, mostly rural community, mostly rural state um, in the south. And then people started coming in from all over the world. And they came for all kinds of reasons. And some came because they needed work, and some came to retire, and people came because they were poor or because they were rich. And um, they, they came with all different sorts of traditions and backgrounds and languages and faiths and ideas. And because there wasn't an existing city, and existing infrastructure, um, we end up interacting with each other, or we have the opportunity to interact with each other in pretty deep ways. We're building a whole metropolis together. And I find those intersections to have the potential to be quite beautiful but also the potential to be explosive and violent Um, so that's what I find interesting about writing about Las Vegas and and seeing what happens when people touch each other who who might not anywhere else in the world interact in that way Mm. Um, yeah
0: you've been you've been there 30 years right um, I've been
1: there 30 years. Yeah. It's changed a lot.
0: Which And you, you came because of marriage, right? You married a, a Vegas guy?
1: No, he or... wasn't a Vegas guy. He was from Indiana, and he lived in Paris. Oh. And we were living in Paris. I always say it was a big bait and switch. Um, but his parents <laughs> that, that is a pretty big bait and switch. In, yeah, it was a pretty big bait and switch. His parents had retired in Las Vegas, and um, just for family reasons, he came out to kind of help take care of them for about a year. And I didn't come because I thought, well, I'm not moving to Las Vegas. But um, in the way of families, it stretched out and I followed along. Uh, So when you come to Las Vegas or a place like Las Vegas that's very new and it didn't have a lot of the things that I thought I was interested in having in my life, um, and you're a tag-along as I was, I didn't have my own thing to do there, um, it was hard. I think a lot of people have come to Las Vegas that way and... It took a long time to figure out how I would knit myself into that community. Um, and I've been lucky I've had a good life, and it turned out to be a great place to raise my kids and i um I've known a lot of people, a lot of a lot of people who are very different from each other and not just known them, but loved them and trusted them. And I feel like when it's when i I look at the whole thing, I see how enriching it was for me to have those opportunities to. Interact with and to and to get to know and to get to deep trust levels with people who are not necessarily just like me.
0: Now it's interesting for people in Utah because Las Vegas, you know, Las Vegas is the myth here as well, right? It's 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 the exactly. brand. It's it's the what you see portrayed in fiction. But it's close enough that uh, you know many people in Utah will have traveled there and maybe have people you know relatives living there. Um, so I want to, uh, talk briefly about, so you say that, uh, it, it was a good place to raise your family?
1: Well, that's the funny thing about Vegas. Um, so we, I think we have a lot of, um, people from Salt Lake, at least I know a lot of people who at least have family in Salt Lake or ties to Salt Lake in Las Vegas and have always known so many people from there. But, um, so this is a big surprise to my family too. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. My family's mostly West Coast, but, um, and Las Vegas is a pretty, very traditional, it can be a very traditional kind of place to raise children in. And um, for all that many, many people might work on the strip, might work 24-hour shifts, um, work in the casinos, when they come home to their kids and to their schools and their neighborhood parks, they lead pretty traditional lives. And there's, this is certainly not true for everyone. There are lots of ways to live in a place like Las Vegas. My way is not the way or the best way or the only way. But it's a common way, and so many many adults separate the working lives they lead in our major industry from the from the lives that they create for their children and their parents and their families and their neighbors. Um, my children are both, you know, pretty much grown. One's in college, one's in law school. They both went far away to college, and when they got there, they realized. Oh my goodness! I know less about Las Vegas than any other person in my dorm. <laughs>
0: hmm. Because they, because they, it was just uh, their hometown, I guess. It
1: was their hometown, and um, I think there there is a sense that Las Vegans are not on vacation when they go to the Strip or when they interact with the Strip. This this is our home. This is our this is our, the place where we live, and so. I mean, this is, of course, there are exceptions, but Las Vegans aren't going crazy on the Strip. You know, we're not partying wildly. It's not the hangover for us. So um, it's possible to live um, in many different ways in Las Vegas. But one of them is it's very, very possible to have close-knit friendships and ties with people for decades. And that is, in fact, my own experience here.
0: I wonder if I could get you, you you told this story, it's a great story when you were on the program before, Uh, your family adopted a motto.
1: Oh yes, I will tell that story. (laughs) Could
0: you tell that story?
1: Um, Yeah, well I like to say that Las Vegas is sui generis, it's just like everywhere else, but it's nowhere like everywhere else, nothing like everywhere else. Um, And then we always tell this story about our daughter, and I think she's getting a little tired of me telling it, but she'll probably never live it down. She played a lot of soccer growing up, and she practiced at least four times a week in these soccer fields, which from our house were on the other side of Boulder Highway. Boulder Highway is the old freeway that ran from, I think, Arizona to Nevada. And now, it's, you know, it's not a very nice street, and it is lined with strip clubs and pornographic joints and bars. And to be perfectly honest, there are a lot of streets like that in Las Vegas. I didn't pay any attention to it. I never thought about the fact that she went back and forth across that highway at least four times a week for years. But when she was about, um, I think she was in seventh or eighth grade, and she had an assignment from her teacher to write a speech about her motto for living. And so she worked on it really hard, and then she delivered it to her dad and I, and dad and me, And um, she said that she had seen her motto for living written out on a neon sign every day when she went back and forth to soccer practice. And she understood the motto to mean that she should live boldly and freely. And then she said, my motto is live nude. So that has been our family motto ever since, Live Nude. When I sign books that way, every once in a while I'll do it just to be funny. And then people give me the oddest look, and I think, oh, I hope they listen to Tom Williams on Access Utah and figure out what I meant.
0: There there you go. Um, you know, she'd taken this, you know, you'd see on the strip there, and it made a nice motto out of it. Um, so uh, Vegas, of course, is a company town. Um, you know, billion dollar industry, very successful branding and, um, it's represented in fiction, of course, in the movies, et cetera, et cetera. That's one version of Vegas. You're talking about a different version of of Vegas. How does the one affect the other? Do you think? How are you affected, you know, or or how do you react to the, you know, the, the, the pumped out marketed Vegas?
1: Well, that's, that's the strange thing about living there. As it happens, neither my husband nor myself work in the casino industry. I teach at the community college. My husband had a small business. And um, the marketing, is, these are smart people that are doing this marketing, and billions of dollars, as you say, have been spent. And, and the image of Las Vegas, which is what creates a community and jobs where I live, gets in my head even though it isn't the Las Vegas that I'm really living in. And I've always found that, sometimes I found it frustrating, but often I have found it interesting. And, and I particularly notice it when I'm interacting with my family or my friends or even strangers or acquaintances, people that I meet around the country. And they have, you know, logically enough, very definite ideas about Las Vegas. Maybe even if they have never been there or they've been there once or twice, and they should have those ideas because a lot of money is spent to make sure they do have those ideas. But I can kind of accidentally slip into the mode where that seems like a real Las Vegas to me, and yet it isn't my lived experience. It, it's quite different from the Las Vegas that I live in and the one that my friends live in. And um, I never saw or I don't often see the Las Vegas where I live represented in fiction and in art. And it's not strictly a city like anywhere else. It is not only that marketed place. It is also an unusual and specific city on its own right. And just for those reasons I talked about earlier, because it draws so many people, because 50 million people come and visit it, because it didn't have and existing infrastructure where everybody who came from this part of the world moved into this part of town, and everybody who came with this faith moved into that part of town. Instead, we all moved in and bought houses or got apartments that were being built, you know, the month or the year that we moved in. And all of that um, just creates, I think, a quite unique place. I also think of it as um, very American and somehow representative of, sort of our nation's roots so we in the united states so many of us came from more established places that's our history is for people to come from established places and try to venture out on their own and do it their own way and make something of that and americans you know have long had this sense of themselves as hardworking, independent people and that's what Las Vegas does in a microcosm, right? People come from all over the world, from more established places. They come on their own. They come, you know, ready to work hard very often and with a lot of—a great deal of independence about how they do that. I find that all just very fascinating.
0: Let's uh, take a brief break. When we come back, we have more with Lara McBride, author, most recently, of Around Midnight— Novel. Uh, Laura McBride is uh, a resident of Las Vegas, teaches at the uh, College of uh, Southern Nevada. And her previous book was We Are Called to Rise, latest book, Round Midnight. Uh, She's at the King's English Bookshop tonight, 7 p.m. in Salt Lake City. We're back with Laura McBride. She is joining us um, uh, ahead of her visit to uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, She's at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight, uh, 7 o'clock. And that uh, event is free and open to the public. The latest novel is Round Midnight, which is uh, set in Las Vegas. It's the story of four women, one who falls in love, one who gets lucky, one whose heart is broken, one who has always wondered. Their lives change at the midnight room in uh, a casino in uh, Las Vegas. And uh, we are talking with Laura McBride uh, for the hour uh, today. Laura McBride, you get into issues of race in uh, the novel. Uh, June and her husband have founded this uh, casino. we at El Capitan. You have the midnight room there. You need entertainers. They've hired a charismatic black man named Eddie. Um, and this is the 1950s. Vegas is very racially segregated uh, town in in the nineteen fifties. Uh, tell me how. First of all, uh, Eddie is that based on anyone's particular?
1: Uh, he's not based on anyone particular. I, I'm sort of careful about shielding my characters from any real person, whether from my personal life or from history. But Eddie is like many many black entertainers that uh, were huge successes and. In the 1950s and 1960s in Las Vegas it's a very interesting history that I think many people don't know um, or at least I wasn't I was aware of it but not to the degree that I became aware of it when I was writing this novel so in the 1950s um, the casinos made a lot of money off entertainers like Sammy Davis Jr. and Pearl Bailey and Nat King Cole But those entertainers, in fact, no black people, were allowed to enter into their casinos, to gamble at their tables, to sleep in their beds, to eat in their restaurants. Not even those big-name entertainers could go into the casinos. There's a story about Nat King Cole. He was packing customers in, but he was not allowed to walk around the casino floor and see the building that he was in. They brought him in through the back door. And at that time, um, in the 1950s, Black entertainers stayed in a rooming house that was um, operated by a woman named Genevieve Harrison on the west side. The west side was the traditional African-American community in Las Vegas, and the roads weren't paved. There was no hot water. Uh, I've been to the house, to Genevieve Harrison's rooming house, and it's a little white, stucco, hot, ugly building, Um, and that's where Pearl Bailey and Sammy Davis Jr. and Nat King Cole and people like that stayed. And moreover, they paid a lot of money to stay there um, so that history of a place that um, celebrated the you know talents and abilities of these musicians but did not um, welcome them into the casinos and only allowed African American black workers to work in what they called back of the house jobs where they wouldn't be seen by customers as maids and janitors and such um, I think that's a history that one is not all of, always aware of in Las Vegas, but, and it plays in my novel. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I was just to say that apparently um, Vegas came to be known as the Mississippi of the West.
1: It was called the Mississippi of the West, and I'm not a historian, and I could have this wrong, but my understanding of what happened is that Las Vegas was more typically a western city. The schools, the public schools, they were, they were very small community, right, but the public schools were integrated Um, in in the 30s, and at some point when Hoover Dam was built, workers poured in from all over the country. That was during the Depression um, to work at Hoover Dam, and many came from the South, both white and black workers. Those Southern workers, is what I've been told, brought their ideas and attitudes about race with them, And while there were both white and black workers coming, it was the white workers who moved up at the dam and moved up into positions of power and sort of instituted a kind of feeling about race that was more typical of the Deep South than of many other Western cities and countries. And that's really where that was coming from in Las Vegas in the 1950s. There was an agreement among the casino owners in 1960 or 1961 to integrate the casinos. Um, I think that was really a business decision. People were frustrated. There was um, a doctor in town who um, established a, a chapter of the NAACP and pushed hard for that. Um, but it's a very fraught and honestly violent and dangerous history that happened then in Las Vegas.
0: That's interesting. It's you know the the West in general, uh, you know, didn't get off scot free in terms of racial issues. But it sounds like Vegas, perhaps maybe was uh, it was intensified because of that specific history.
1: Yeah, that that's my impression of how that went. Um, and then the way it plays in Round Midnight is that June Stein and her husband Dell are casino owners, and they in fact hire Eddie Knox, and he is such a hit and such a superstar that that's really why their casino takes off, and they are very close friends. So that's kind of the the nub of the you know the initial conflict that happens in the novel is that you have this successful young white couple close friends with their you know their major star who's bringing in the people and bringing in the money a black man named Eddie Knox and he is from the deep south and he carries that history with him um, i also touched on race issues I, I I said earlier that I wasn't conceptual when I think about a novel, and by that I mean I don't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write about four women, or I'm going to write about race, or I have a message. I don't work like that at all. I I, I think about a character, someone who's interesting to me, and I try to inhabit, in this case it was June Stein, I try to inhabit her fully and understand her motivations and her her inner thoughts, and then I set her down in a particular time in a particular place, and when I set June Stein down in Las Vegas, I set her down in a place that over the next 60 years was going to radically transform. Um, so honorata who's from the Philippines, um, she's, you know, she is just like thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who came to Las Vegas from so many countries all over the world. And, and in Gracia as well, she comes to Las Vegas from Mexico as an, she's an illegal immigrant from Mexico. So, um, those, those qualities of those women, the way that story is marketed, sometimes make it sound like that was my message or my point, um, but it wasn't at all. It's just that that's the nature of Las Vegas, and that's how the story played out. That's who became interesting to me in it.
0: Mm-hmm. So you talk about the marketing versus your conception of the, you know, what what you're going for in the novel. What 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 is the what what what's your central theme do you think is that that connection that interconnectedness that we talked about before
1: um so that it's such a good question and a writer should surely know <laughs> but i don't think with my literary brain when i'm writing and i'm not objecting to the marketing i mean that's how i describe the novel to my friends it's not just how my publisher describes it it's just that when i describe it that way it sounds like i was em- embarking on a different process than i was when i was writing it um, my, I'm always about connection. I'm always about people and how we interact with each other and what it means to form a community and how we become present for each other. You know, I started writing at 50 years old. I'm a mom. I'm a teacher. I, I'm a friend. I'm a wife. I, I think this is what life is about. No, I mean, I don't know what life is about. I have no idea. Actually, I have no answers for anyone. But for myself, um, it always comes down to people and to how we relate to each other and to how we either help each other through or hurt each other. That's just what interests me and what motivates me. And and I see it's that theme, that idea was so strong in my first novel, We Are Called to Rise, and in a very different way, it's so strong in Round Midnight, but again, I didn't set out to write that theme or send that message. It just sort of comes out of the way that I live in the world, and I understand what it means to be human.
0: Let me just pause right there. If people don't don't know your story, that's pretty brave, I would think. Fifty years old, you, mm-hmm. you write your first novel.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know if it was brave. It was maybe foolhardy. Mm-hmm. When I wrote it, I didn't expect it to be published, and I was pretty realistic about that because I had written another novel about it a decade earlier, and I had tried really hard to get someone to read that in the publishing world, and nobody read it. It didn't go anywhere, and so I felt that I had a pretty good sense of the difficulty that I would have in ever getting anything published. I had a sabbatical from my job at the as an English teacher at the community college, and Long story short, I ended up writing We Are Called to Rise during that sabbatical. I was 50 years old. Um, it was the middle of the recession. Things were pretty tough. There was many ways that things seemed discouraging at that moment. And I thought, well, I'm going to take this semester that I have, and I am going to create something. And in all likelihood, only my friends will ever read it, and maybe my children will find it someday. And if so, I want to be proud of it. I want to be proud of it as a work of art. I want it to be the best writing that I can do. But I also want to be proud of the story and of the kind of story that I tell and what that story says about life. And then because I'm a very impatient reader, I also wanted to make it kind of fun to read and to always keep leaving the reader on a ledge and wanting to know what happens on the next page. And so I undertook that process just Um, the way that somebody takes on making dinner or making a quilt or painting a building just um, as an individual, personal, creative endeavor. Um, And then the crazy thing was that someone introduced me to an agent and it sold, and boom, all of a sudden it was selling all over the world. And now at least in one part of me, I'm a novelist. And that I don't know how to explain that so crazy. I'm going to have to be less cynical than I've been my whole life, because if that can happen, what else
0: could happen? That's right. Anything can happen. I want to—there's uh, a, a conversation with Laura McBride put out by your publisher. I want to read just this one paragraph. This is in response to the question, do you have any advice for aspiring writers? So here's what you say, at least in part. I wish that I had not abandoned writing when I was younger and waited till I was 50 to take it up again. I quit because I didn't see a past publication. I thought about it to what I was doing as, quote, writing a book, end quote. If I couldn't get that book produced and into the world, I didn't see the value in doing it. So I stopped writing, turned outward, started teaching, did a lot of volunteer work, and focused on my community. Of course, those are admirable things. You were focused on publication, so what? what is your advice for aspiring writers? Write, write even if you don't see a path to publication?
1: Oh, absolutely write even if you don't see a path to publication. I think that one should write if it's meaningful to that writer. If it is a creative endeavor that that interests one, that excites one, that allows one to think about whatever issues are interesting, then write and and love it. And I and I will be rooting for every writer to be able to send that work into the world. But at, despite the existence of self-publishing and some other opportunities, most of publishing is out of The control of the writer. And if you are working in order to be published, then, you know, it can be an extraordinarily frustrating experience in which you cannot be a meaningful actor. You can produce whatever you produce. And and I'm not saying there aren't ways to get published or ways to go about it. But it is a very difficult process. And there are a lot of people out there um, working and I just think that if writing is meaningful and joyful and stimulating, do it. And if it becomes a frustrating quest for publication, then go do something else because life is short and there's so many things one can do and so many ways to be creative and productive in the world. That's. I mean, I'm not an expert. That's just my thought. The only thing I would say, and, I, and you read it, my quotes, is all that said – I wish that instead of giving up writing because I couldn't see a path to publication, I could have, as a younger person, said, I'm still going to write because it's a rich experience and it helps me process um, the world and it allows me a sort of um, opening out into the world. And I wish that I had seen the value in that earlier some of that was just practical. I, I needed a job. I wanted a job. I'm a working person. I needed health insurance. Um, and I'm, I'm a grown-up, so I like to go right to grown-up decisions when it's time to make them. But
0: Oh, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Laura McBride, uh, author most recently of Round Midnight. Uh, Laura McBride is, lives in Las Vegas, teaches at the College of Southern Nevada, and uh, she's on a book tour. Uh, she'll be at the King's English Bookshop tonight, 7 o'clock, for a reading and signing, and uh, that event is free and open to the public. That's in Salt Lake City, seven o'clock is when uh, when that starts. So, Laura McBride, you've described uh, Las Vegas as a boom town. Um, so you'll you'll have immigration, a lot of immigration in. Uh, you have previ- you've previously described in other interviews, and in here I believe earlier in the hour, wealth disparities, also political and economic tensions. And you said something interesting um, in a previous interview. Possibilities that that creates, those tensions, are explosive and beautiful. All of what I've mm. just uh, quoted you as saying, I think, you know, that, that's why you describe Las Vegas as a kind of an all-American city. All of that could describe America in general.
1: I think so. Um, can I take us in a different direction for just you, a second? Y- I yes. I will get back to this. You, you I bet. just want to say something about the King's English Bookshop, which I— Only heard of after I became a novelist because I don't often go to Salt Lake City. And um, I heard about it because the owner, Betsy Burton, I think she did a radio review of my novel right when it first came out. And then I came back to Salt Lake City and to the King's English Bookshop when I was on a paperback tour in 2015. And I presume that all of your listeners and everyone in Salt Lake probably already knows everything there is to know about the King's English Bookshop. But just in case they don't, it is amazing an absolutely amazing wonderful independent bookseller and betsy burton is a national superstar rock star in the indie bookseller world and i just just in case people in salt lake don't know what a treasure that place is it's it's really an extraordinary bookstore betsy burton is an extraordinary book owner they are doing really cool things all the time and um I just, I just want to give them a little pitch. They did not ask me to do so. They don't get paid for having me. But I, I just couldn't believe it when I walked in that little blue house of a bookstore in downtown Salt Lake City and realized what an amazing place it was.
0: Here, here, here. yes. Betsy Burton and, and a lot of positive energy around the King's English. So, yes, I second that.
1: Oh, so great. Great. But, but you asked me a question about immigration and wealth disparities and tensions people who have different ways of living in the world, whether that be expressed politically or religiously or economically or in the way they raise their children. And we all are, I think, very aware that there are such tensions in our American society. And one of the things that, I mean, again, you know, I'm no expert. I'm just an ordinary person like anyone else, just commenting from my own perspective on the world. But In my adult lifetime, it seems to me that two things have happened. One, the United States has become, in so many ways, a much more interesting place as people have poured in from all over the world and as Americans have become freer and freer to travel to other places in the world. I think everything about that is so beautiful. We eat great food. We speak interesting languages. We know things about other people we didn't know. I love that. The other thing that seems to have happened in my lifetime is that Americans, because we're more mobile, we scurry more and more to our own kind. So people who have one set of ideas about politics or religion or families or whatever live in some communities, and people who have other ideas live in other communities, and, um, and then ne'er the twain shall meet. I think that if I had had a lot of control of my life when I was a young woman, I would have done the same thing. And I would have scampered right to a community that thought like I did and had the same ideas and the same values and the same perspective and the same way of seeing how people should interact and, and how a government should in- react interact with its people and, and all of those questions. Um, but that didn't happen to me. I tagged along with my husband and I ended up in Las Vegas and I ended up in a city that does not really do that, that is in so many ways purple, it's so diverse, it's so um, not fully formed in one way or another. And that was not an easy transition for me and I missed getting to live the life that I had imagined. But what I got back was You know, deep and true interactions with people who see the world, see individuality, see themselves, see government, see faith, see economics differently from each other. And I really believe that we can solve our problems, we can make this place, we can make this world a better place, we can make this country a better place, but we have to talk to each other not at each other. And we have to love each other. We can't, you know, we can't just sort of rustle our wagons and just interact with people who are like us. That's what my life has taught me. So, I I don't know, did that answer your question? I would have gotten a soapbox there, but it (laughs) it really is what my Las Vegas life taught me.
0: Yeah, it's a a very apropos soapbox, and I want to follow up. Um it seems like what you're suggesting which you know uh, I think many of us would second heartily is getting harder.
1: Yeah. The pressures That's what would I think.
0: polarize us. So how, how how do we push back against those pressures?
1: Well, my little piece is to write about Las Vegas and to go all over the country sitting in my rental car. Um, but I've been doing this, you know, for three and a half years. Not as a not as a message sender, as a novelist talking about my book, right? But I've still I go all over the country and in communities that you know where a lot of people think one way, and in other communities where a lot of people think another way, I say over and over again, there's another path, and I live in it. And Las Vegas is changing. You know, we're not in any way immune to being just like every other American city. So if the years when my children were growing up were very mixed up in terms of who they would interact with and who they went to school with, we are less and less like that. We have more and more master plan communities. We have more private schools. We have more ways that people can separate out and be just with their own kind. Um, but so... It takes effort. It takes a desire to go ahead and risk interacting with people who live and think and feel and believe differently than yourself. And that happened to me accidentally, so I can't tell people how to do it in a more intentional way, but I, I personally believe that it is the answer, and we all do it all the time. In the places when we do interact, like if we're at work or we're, you know, interacting maybe with our families in which we have people who are very different, we find ways to solve problems and work through things and talk about difficult ideas. We just have to have the chance to interact with each other. And I don't, you know, I, th- I can think of a lot of ways that that could happen.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking with Laura McBride. Uh, We're going to take a brief break and come back with our last segment with her. She is an author based in Las Vegas, teaches at College of Southern Nevada, and her latest novel is Round Midnight. It's getting great reviews. She's on the book tour for the novel, and she'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight, 7 o'clock. And that uh, event is free and open to the public. More following this break. We're back with the final segment with Laura McBride. She is author previously of We Are Called to Rise. The latest novel is Round Midnight. And uh, Laura McBride is uh, based in uh, Las Vegas. This uh, novel is set in Las Vegas. It uh, spans some 60 years, starting in the 1950s. Coming up to uh, present time, uh, treats uh, mainly four uh, characters, four uh, strong uh, women. Um, June, who with her husband has founded uh, this uh, um, nightclub. Onorata, a Filipino woman who is uh, seeking to uh, to escape her, her uh, husband that she's uh, she, I think she's been forced to uh, become a mail order bride. Coral is searching for her identity, and Ingracia is an illegal immigrant uh, from Mexico, and their uh, their fates are intertwined at this uh, this casino in in Las Vegas. Um, and uh, Laura McBride will be at the King's English Bookshop tonight, 7 o'clock, in Salt Lake City. That event is free and open uh, to the uh, to the public. So Laura McBride, in this last segment, um, I was fascinated by—it's it, a very brief about section on your website, which is, uh, by the way, the website mm-hmm. is uh, lauramcbrideauthor.com. And so authors are more or less— Private, right? Uh, some will tell you uh, in, in great length about their lives. Um, you express concern that you don't want, I guess, your personal life read too much into your novel. In fact, you you say in "We Are Called to Rise," your previous novel, Avis says she didn't like to write things in a baby book that she didn't want to shape events after they happened, and she got that fear from me. <laughs> what 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 is the concern there?
1: Um. Well. So I, you know, I, I was writing a novel. I didn't think anybody would read it except my friends and family. But I guess I just have a, like a, maybe it's a um, privacy zone around my own life. So I'm a pretty open person. I like people. I'll, I, I I'm honestly interested in engaging with other people. But along with that, I keep a pretty tight private core. I don't know if you could, go out in the world and do what I do, either as a teacher or, or as a novelist, if I didn't sort of protect that private zone. And I certainly wanted to protect it in my work. I didn't want anyone I knew saying, oh, this is about me. It seems like it would violate their privacy. And also, I have my own view. If you and I were related and we had interacted with each other for the last 10 or 20 or 50 years, um, I would have my own view of you. But your view of you would be different. And then I would take my power as the writer and the person putting those words in print and kind of impose my view on you. And everything about that makes me uncomfortable. Um, And I also recognize, um, because I am a novelist, because I see the world in terms of story, because I have stories turning in my head all the time, I recognize that I can shape an event, or an experience, or an interaction into a story when it might have been much more diffuse in reality, and that is just innate. I do that all the time. So memory is tricky. Um, I know from experience that I, I have memories that feel absolutely true to me, and yet verifiably are not true, or or I have, um, I have ideas that seem absolutely real and accurate and true to the essence of something that may not seem that way to someone else. So if I'm going to play with that and if I'm going to put it in print and if I'm going to sort of assume the power that any writer has, I want to do that imaginatively. Everything that I want to say, everything that I want to do in terms of entertainment for a reader um, can be done totally with the imagination. I don't need to use real people or real stories or my own real life to do that. And it seems to me that one takes quite a large risk. Now, other people are memoirists and, and I love reading memoir and I admire them and I don't know how they do it. And I don't know how their friends and family feel about them. I, I, I suspect that if I spoke to one, um, they have a clear understanding of how to manage those issues, but I don't. So I just try
0: to stay away from it. Mm, yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I understand. I do understand. Um, and yet, the middle paragraph here... Makes me want to read your memoir. Uh, let me just quote this: um, <laughs> okay. "I once was a girl who worked in a store that sold guns and toys." That's her in the photo above. If you go to com you can see the picture. Very, very nice picture. Before that, I was the youngest daughter and a middle child in a big happy family. I grew up across the street from a river in a magical house in a poor and thrilling neighborhood. My life divides in two. Before that, family had a great grief, and after, many years have gone by. And I barely recognize this girl. Now my joys are my children, my dear friends, my family, a marriage that's lasted 30 years, a teaching career that grounds me in real life and this glorious, crazy journey of becoming a published writer when I thought such possibilities were, uh, were past. So I, I guess to, for you to write a memoir, I guess you'd have to figure out that division, that memoirists have figured out. Is that what that would take?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have been um, actually just in the last few months, um, I revamped my website, for the publication of Around Midnight. And um, I don't know, I was getting a lot of advice to put a blog on there. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I don't know how I write a novel. I don't know how I could possibly also write a blog while also teaching full-time, et cetera. But I did put a blog on there, and I, I tried not to call it a blog. I called it occasional writing, so that I could once, or, once in a while drop something in. And so on that, I have been experimenting just a little bit with a story here or there from my own life, um, I'm pretty careful about what I choose. Pretty protected from anybody that could be hurt. I, I have not yet, and don't intend to write about my own children, for example, even though they are just wonderful and I adore them. Um, and so that process is excruciating, and <laughs> excruciating, also interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, and I, I I post those little bits, which would probably not even be very interesting to you, and, you know, my, my heart starts to pound, like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, who can read this? Um, just publishing a novel, even if it's not about me, it feels like I've taken my skin off, hmm. and so...
0: Yeah. And now I, now the next layer, I guess, if you're. If you, but actually, the blog posts were where I was heading. So uh, when I found oh, them, were, okay. I, I found them fascinating. Um, just a kind of a glimpse in, into your life. Fascinating immigrant stories, you know, in your own personal uh, family. Um, and your father, you know, let me just read this a little, uh, couple of sentences. It never occurred to me, you say, there was anything unusual about someone spending his entire life in prayer. At at some point, I think when you brought your husband home, right, to meet the family or your boyfriend at that time, maybe, um, did it occur to you that, oh, not everyone has a father who goes around saying rosaries all day?
1: Right. That was just my ordinary life. Um, my, my family was Catholic. My family was generally deeply religious. Um sometimes people understand that to mean that they were also maybe deeply conservative or deeply rigid and they absolutely weren't. They were um the opposite of rigid people. Um but they but my father in particular um had a special relationship with a rosary which is a Catholic prayer. It involves reciting sixty six prayers in a particular order. It's a kind of a devotion. And um, My father said one for each one of his six children and his wife and his mother every day of his life. And that's a lot of prayers. (laughs) It takes a lot of time. And he learned how to just do it while doing anything else that was going on. He could, I I think I say in the blog, that he could talk or fly fish or eat or change a diaper, throw a ball um, while saying the rosary. And until I left that world, I didn't know uh, it, it was, it, as is every child's experience, it seems absolutely ordinary, and it's only when you leave that you find out that other people live.
0: You had a, you, you, your father's father died young, right? A mining accident?
1: Yeah. Or in he the was aftermath? An immigrant from Scotland, and um, he was in Butte, Montana, and he had only been there less than a year, He maybe a few months. Um, he brought his immigrant wife, and my father, his baby, and he. um, there was a fire in the mine, and he was called in, not on his regular shift, to fight the fire, and he wasn't killed by the fire, but it did damage his lungs, and it was a winter night, and he probably laid outside, but it's not clear, um, until his lungs were damaged enough that he just... um, he didn't make it. He, I don't know exactly how old he would have been. Probably twenty-five or twenty-six. And um, he was he was one of I think seventeen or eighteen children, two wives, same father. They all came from Scotland to Canada together. And um, my whole life, I knew that he had been someone very special. He was just very special in everyone's memories of him and all of his brothers and sisters. And um, it was a it was a a tragedy in that family, obviously long before I was born, before my dad's capacity for memory, um, and still the sort of he resonated as someone who had been particularly beloved and special, and was really missed all his life.
0: Mm. You have, uh, I think, Basque ancestry. Uh, we're running out of time, so, so it, um, maybe just a brief on that, and then I want to tie this, as you do, to the American dream, and then we'll maybe close here. Uh, so that's okay. that's interesting.
1: My grandmother, my mother's mother, was Basque. Um, she was born in um, El Anchovy, a little town north of Bilbao, Spain, and she came as a child um, to this country. Uh, that's my connection.
0: Mm, yeah, interesting. I think the, a lot of Basque in, in Nevada is my yeah. understanding. she
1: came to Washington. Yeah. I, I, grew up, mm. I grew up in Washington, but they were fishers, and they— emigrated to tacoma and my grandmother was legal she came across legally with her mother but many of that family they all ended up in tacoma many of them never were documented they sailed around what is it at the bottom of south america they sailed all the way around and up to the west coast of the united states right i can't remember um, the name yeah yeah
0: yeah uh so let me just read a couple paragraphs here from your blog post you say the american dream it belongs to my children to me to my parents and it took so little to change generations of history. You go on to talk about your uh, kids who are you know, successful in school, in uh, college. And then you—I'll uh, um, I'll finish with this paragraph. Not everyone was interested in giving their Basque grandmother, their Jewish grandfather, their poor grandparents a shot at a new life. And yet the investment in those grandparents was really so small— it was an apple. It was Apple stock. Then in nineteen ninety seven, and the return infinitely larger than the good that just two of their grandchildren might have the chance to do, in this world. So that, that does tie it to the American dream, doesn't it? Your personal story.
1: Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, I was speaking at a literary festival. That's a talk I gave. That was um, the theme was the American dream, and the the event that I did was called Prayers for the American Dream, and so I was thinking about my dad as an immigrant, all of my immigrant family, but, but because my dad. Prayed the rosary every day, I was putting those two things together. And um, that was, I don't know how I feel about that being on my blog yet, on my website, but it was um, a rich experience for me to write that story down.
0: Well, we're out of time. Um, the the uh, novel's getting great reviews. Interesting uh, novel we we'll worth read. Round Midnight is the name of the novel. The previous novel is We Are Called to Rise. The author is Laura McBride, and uh, she is at the King's English Book Shop in Salt Lake City tonight for a reading and signing. 7 o'clock is when that starts free and open to the public. Laura McBride, uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tom. You are so great. I
0: appreciate this. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, just mentioned at the end here, Laura McBride has been good enough to join us from her rental car. So uh, safe travels as as you you. you go along. Um, uh, Laura McBride, you can find more at lauramcbrideauthor.com. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.